I'll just mute the, I'll, I'll unmute it, don't worry. <laughs> this isn't going to be a tour de force. Shashank doesn't trust us quite to get this done properly, but I'm sure we can handle it. So, good morning. Welcome to Pediat. Thank you. Welcome to Pediatric Grand Rounds on June 10th, 2015. On this 10th, I'm going to take a quick opportunity to, um, as we were in service club season, recognize some members of Chad who are celebrating milestones. Uh, our 10s, our class of 10, 10th year service club include Kathy Bean from Child uh, Advocacy and Protection Program, Bonnie Whalen, Pediatric Hospital Medicine, Dan Cretoro from Pediatric Surgery, and a trio from the PICU, Sholene Nett, Marcy Singleton, and Michelle Vander Hayden. So thank you, TENS. <laughs> Celebrating a 15th anniversary year uh, of service to Dartmouth-Hitchcock is Sarah Griesemer from the Intensive Care Nursery. I don't see Sarah. <laughs> and the 20-year member for this year is Lynn Feenan from Pulmonary. Thank you, Lynn. Um, so, well, we, I'm only going to 20 this time. I'm only, next, next, we have more to celebrate. So, um, but we have much to celebrate, including uh, you know, an opportunity today, and our only opportunity is unfortunately today, to uh, honor perhaps our... Um, most significant um, awardee in our Department of Pediatrics, the Saul Blattman Award for that. Sam House is going to do the honors. Um, good morning. So I want to start, can you guys hear me? I might need the mic. Um, I'm pretty loud, though. I want to start just by saying that I could talk about this year's recipient all day long, um, but it sounds like Shashank has worked pretty hard on this talk he's about to give, so I want to give him ample time to get through it. Um, so I promised I'd be brief. But as most of you know, the Blattman Award is a departmental tradition presented annually to a faculty member selected by the residents for embodying the traits possessed by Dr. Saul Blattman, the first chair of the Department of Maternal and Child Health. Dr. Blattman was known for not only his clinical excellence, but also his grace, goodness, and leadership. In writing the description for this award in 1981, the House staff stated, the honor should go to that person who exemplifies the kind of doctor we would most like to be, the faculty person who best fulfills our goals as teacher, and the person who best represents the child and patient as doctor, friend, and healer. Um, as always, we had an incredible group of nominees and finalists this year. The residents had a lot of anxiety about making a decision. Um, many of them came to my office in search of candy and help and guidance, and so ultimately, they were able to make a really good decision. This year's winner really embodies all of those traits that Dr. Blattman was so well known for. Her dedication to her patients is second to none. She's often, late at night or on weekends, found in the hospital, checking in, sometimes even just making social visits to stable patients. When I sought nominations for this award, one of our residents summed this up well in saying, she is the most devoted physician. She came into the hospital last night to check her consult, called me when lab results came in, and just walked down to the PICU to update me on the plan. She is literally the most devoted and kindest woman I have worked with. The dedication she shows with her patients is um, at least equally matched with the dedication she has with our to our residency program. She's an eager teacher, spending time to discuss medical decision-making both in the clinic and the inpatient setting, answering all our questions with patients, 
and showing the residents time and time again how to properly put an asthma action plan into the after visit summary, which is not an easy task. She volunteers often to participate in the noon conference series, even when the chief resident doesn't give her a lot of heads up, which we really appreciate. Um, and as I tried to tie my thoughts about this person together succinctly, the concept of balance really sort of stuck out in my mind. She has perfected the balance between empathy and strength, managing difficult discussions with grace, while moments later disciplining difficult teenagers with an ease almost certainly perfected in her parenting career. Her tremendous dedication to her work is balanced by a deep devotion to her family, faith, and community. Her high expectations of learners are balanced with an incredible patience that makes us all not only strive to be better physicians, but also believe that we can't be better physicians. It is these qualities that led the residents to select this year's Blattman Award recipient, and it's my honor to present this to Luke Lowe. Thank you, Dr. Gwill. I think that comes from everybody and uh, a heartfelt standing O. Uh, so Dr. Bahari, Dr. Bahari is presenting our grand rounds today very briefly so that he can um, get on to the tour de force. He joined us in 2013 after completing his medical training at Mahatma Gandhi Institute of Medical Sciences in Warda, India, and spending some time also as a medical officer in, in Laxmi Hospital spending some time here as well um, in the United States previewing uh, internships. He's already distinguished himself as a writer both of uh, scientific papers in the medical literature but also uh, fiction and uh, important works outside of the, the official medical literature. But um, before uh, letting him get to us and reminding us that he's going to be starting his pediatric cardiology fellowship at Alfred I. DuPont Newmore's Children's Hospital in Wilmington, Delaware, we just received this letter on unsolicited June 4th, a recent staff meeting of the Emergency Services Program of the Vermont Department for Children and Families, Dr. Shashank Bahard was discussed as warranting recognition. We have had consistently positive interactions. This was an episode that hopefully all of you read about in the last Chad Chatter. We have had consistently positive interactions with the pediatric staff of DHMC, but wanted to especially recognize this instance of going above and beyond in the middle of the night to keep a child safe. So um, I don't know if there can be a higher uh, recognition or introduction for Shashank than that. So. Um, can everyone hear me? Yeah. Um, it was a team effort, by the way. Anusha was fabulous, and she was on that night. Um, so good morning, everyone. Thank you all for coming. Um, I am going to tell you today the story of potentially one of the great adversaries of pediatric cardiology, hypoplastic left heart syndrome, or HLH. Um, specifically, we're going to talk about one of the aspects of the management of HLH that has become an area of pretty strong debate, has been for the last many years in pediatric cardiology. But before we go into all of those things, before I go into my outline of what I'm going to be speaking uh, about today, um, I am going to plug one of my favorite places in the Upper Valley. <laughs> the Four Aces Diner. I highly recommend their eggs, Benny. You will not find better. 
Um, and I have borrowed their um, menu for my outline. So, uh, we're going to talk a little bit about the basic pathophysiology, what you need to know about HLH. We're going to talk about the outcomes in HLH and how things have changed over the years. And then that's all going to lead into this, uh, this debate that I'm going to talk about. Uh, but before we get into all of that, I think we should begin at the beginning, like all good stories, which begs the question, uh, when did the story begin? Um, you could argue that the story began in the 1600s when William Harvey discovered the circulatory system and where there was darkness, now there was light, right? <laughs> or you could argue 200 years later when Lenach put the first stethoscope on the first chest and where there was silence, now there were heartbeats, right? Um, but you know, for the longest time afterwards, all through the 19th century and for the beginning of the 20th century, pediatric cardiology was really just about treating kids with rheumatic heart disease, and congenital anomalies were more of a post-mortem oddity, sort of something that people didn't really believe you could live with. Um, then this amazing woman came into the picture, and she changed things. This is Helen Tosig, and in the 1930s, she started a clinic um, down at Johns Hopkins, uh, where she started to correlate clinical findings and really describe congenital heart diseases for the first time. Then things started to change pretty rapidly. So in 1938, uh, a surgeon, a 33-year-old surgeon by the name of Robert Gross ligated the first PDA. And all of a sudden, there was something we could do. A few years later, um, Tosig and Blaylock and Vivian Thomas got together and performed the first shunt on a blue baby, as uh, demonstrated in the movie Something the Lord Made with uh, Professor Snape over there. And the baby turns miraculously pink. <laughs> and pretty soon, we had procedures for all sorts of things. People were coming up with repairs for coax. We were doing repairs for pulmonary stenosis. But, 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 <laughs> big, bad, blue, complex heart disease that we still didn't really have good solutions for. I'm talking about things like transposition, tricuspid atresia, and HLH. So fast forward now to the 70s. This is before I was born, but... <laughs> all of a sudden... We had a few more procedures for a few more things, and these big hitters started to take a few dents themselves. We had some new medical procedures. We could give people prostaglandin for the very first time. And uh, someone came up, uh, Dr. Raskin came up with a septostomy, which would keep babies alive uh, longer. But we still didn't really have a good solution for HLH. Moving to the 80s now, this is Queen. And Dr. Norwood. Um, came up with his revolutionary procedure for HLH, and all of a sudden, you could now keep babies with HLH alive weeks into months. But we still didn't have a fix for HLH. And so, as you can imagine, for an entire generation of pediatric cardiologists, HLH really became one of the final frontiers of pediatric cardiology. <laughs> <laughs> and to some extent, um, that, that thought process hasn't quite gone away. So that's really sort of the, the historical aspect that you should know going into this. Now we're going to do a little bit of HLH 101. This is just the basics of what you need to understand about HLH so that we can talk about the outcomes and the ethics. So HLH occurs in about 1 in 5,000 uh, live births. But from this big slide with all these numbers, and all I want you to remember is that even though it only accounts for a small portion of heart disease, it accounts for a disproportionately high amount of cardiac deaths. And most importantly, if you leave it untreated, it is essentially a death sentence. 95% of them will be dead by the first month if you do nothing for it. Um, so this is, the, this is the base that we're dealing with. Um, the state of the art as it is right now is that we do three-stage palliative surgeries for this um, disease. And we don't really call them fixes because they're not fixing the problem. What they're doing is they're palliating. They're allowing you more time. 
Um, and transplant, so 20 years ago, transplant was more of a primary method of treating this. So you would think of transplant as the cure or the treatment for HLH. We're in a place now where we use transplant more when these palliative surgeries uh, reach the end of their lives, and that's when you get transplants. As it stands right now, it's a pretty broad variation, but I would say somewhere between 15 to 30 years of life is where people are getting transplants after getting the palliations. Now, I was fortunate enough to meet uh, or to speak with some parents whose children had HLH, and it gave me a lot of awesome perspective on what it means to, to have this in your family. And I've got quotes from them here and there through my presentation. This is one of the quotes that talks about how it feels to be diagnosed with this. So the conversation was surreal. She's talking about when she talked to the, the physician. We didn't like him. We didn't like what he was saying. I told him not to mumble, and I told him to use words I could understand. Everything was complicated, foreign, and frightening. We just wanted to wake up from this bad dream. We remember the explanation of the stage surgeries that could give him a chance at surviving. So I'm going to walk you through those stage surgeries now just very briefly. Hope this works. So this is a normal beating heart. Uh, you've got deoxygenated blue blood going down the right side, up the pulmonary trunk, and you've got a red oxygenated blood going down the left side and then going to the rest of your body through your aorta. That makes sense? And so, right? But here's the problem. With HLH, you don't have anything coming out the left side of your heart, so what ends up happening is that all of the blood mixes and there's one ventricle pumping for both sides. So all of a sudden, the aorta, the, the systemic supply, doesn't have a, like a great source of blood flow anymore. It gets its blood um, through the uh, open duct over there. So then what we do over the course of stages is, in the first few days of life, they do what we call the Norwood procedure, which is stage one. And you don't really need to remember any of these names, just remember them as one, two, and three. So with stage one, what happens is we create something called a neo-aorta, which just guarantees that that one ventricle is at least able to get its blood supply to the body. And in the meanwhile, make a little duct over there, like Professor Snape did up over there, um, <laughs> that lets you make sure that the lungs are still getting uh, blood supply. And then, a few months later, we take the next step, which is where we take about half of that blue blood and we start making it go straight to the lungs without bothering the heart. This is something we <laughs> see around six months of life, roughly. And then the third stage of that is called the Fontan, somewhere between one and a half to four years of life, where we take the final step in this process. We take all of that blue blood and make it go straight to the lungs in a passive way. And then the, the heart is just left to deal with all of that red blood and uh, is not doing as much of a, a hard job as it was before. The other thing that has changed in our management of HLH is how we manage these patients in between these surgeries. So in the old days, what would happen is blue baby born in the hospital gets pink, goes home with mom and dad. And then what would happen after that is anytime the baby got sick, you'd go see your doctor. And babies were dying a lot. And when they look back, they realized that babies were coming to their doctors 24 hours before mortality. And so the question was, could we be capturing them a little earlier? What they do now is called home monitoring, where when you leave the hospital, you go home with a weighing scale, a SAT monitor, and we ask you to keep a diary where you're supposed to look at certain parameters. And any time any of those parameters is off, you go see the doctor even if the baby isn't sick. And we've had a drop in mortality since this has happened. This is a big uh, part of the management. The other thing to remember here is that when they go to see their doctors, they're actually seeing multidisciplinary teams now with uh, nurse practitioners, nurses, and doctors who know them well. So all of that is easy for me to say on paper, but what's it like to actually have this in your family? And I think even this quote, sort of awesome quote that it is, um, still doesn't, you know, it's, it's no replacement for actually doing this, but it's the best we could do. 
Our lives have pretty much revolved around him and meeting his medical, emotional, and special educational needs for the past 18 years. It has taken its toll on our finances, our marriage, our entire family. Sometimes I wonder how we're still holding it together. Not everyone can do that. All right. So those are the basics of HLH. Um, what I'm going to tell you next is some outcome data. So over the last two decades, outcomes have changed a lot. And this matters because you need to understand where we've been coming from, where we are right now, and what lies ahead of us so that you can understand why people are still debating uh, HLH. So before we get to the actual survivor numbers, just talking a little bit about prenatal diagnosis. This is 15 years ago or so, 15, 20 years ago or so, half of the diagnoses were made prenatally and half of them were made postnatally. We're now at a place where about 75% of the diagnoses are made uh, prenatally and 25% uh, are made postnatally still. This is data from 2010. Um, so back in, the, back in the days just after the Norwood came in, so this is the first few publications after the Norwood had been done for a while. We're talking mid-80s. We had survival numbers of 28% at three years of life. So that's still pretty dismal, right? What has changed since then is that we, well, a lot of things have changed, but the, the way that the data has changed is that in the 2000s, um, a lot of hospitals across the country came together and created something called the Single Ventricle Reconstruction Trial, which is where about 550 babies, uh, a cohort of 550 babies was put together, and we have been rolling data off of that um, since then. Um, this data that I'm going to give you for modern survival comes from that pooled data from the uh, single ventricle reconstruction trial. But basically, what happens is about 3% of babies die before they get to that stage one procedure. Then, at one year of life, you have a mortality of like 68%, and then when you get to three years of life, mortality is roughly 64%. One of the nuances here is that there are actually two flavors of the repair and of the stage one repair, and um, depending on uh, which one you get, the mortality numbers were slightly different in the middle, but it's kind of beyond the scope of what we're talking about today, so I'm just not going to go into it too much. Um, but what you will notice is that there's a big drop. So that first year of life, there's a big hit, right? You go from 97% before the surgery to uh, roughly 68% at 12 months. So what happens there? It seems like the biggest chunk of mortality in that 12-month period is right in that first hospitalization around the time you're getting your stage one repair. So before you've left the hospital for the first time. And then proportionately less mortality before your second stage, which would, which would happen before the first year, and, and then after your second stage. So they looked into this, and they were wondering, what is this associated with? And it kind of makes sense. With initial deaths, you've got things like low birth weight and genetic abnormalities, and if you were on ECMO, and if you had an open sternum for a while. So these are things that you know, would logically make sense. This very interestingly, um, associations with later death include things like poverty and Hispanic ethnicity. Um, and the MBTS is just one of the flavors I was talking about. What I want you to remember, though, this is important, is that this is pooled data. This is data from across the country. One thing to remember is that this is not institution-specific. If you look at some of the centers of excellence in this country, um, their numbers are much higher. We're talking in the 90s at this point. But not every child who's born with HLH is going to be able to go to one of those centers, which is why it's important to still have that perspective of pooled data. And the other thing to remember is that this is all a work in progress. We still have unpublished data. So everything I'm telling you is from a moment in time that was a few years before where we are right now. It's kind of like uh, looking at um, a red giant through your telescope and knowing that that's something that happened you know, a few million years ago, and it's just you're catching it now. So 
we talk a lot about survivorship, but the other thing that matters to people is what happens neurologically. How do these kids end up doing um, down the road with their neurological outcomes? And this is something that people have been studying for a long time, too. The ways that we do this, for the most part, is by something called the PDI and the MDI, which is your physical development index and your mental development index. Um, they're numbers, basically. Um, the IQ test uh, have been used and continue to be used, but it's, um, it's not as good a single number to pin all of your uh, thoughts on. So we don't use it um, like just IQ tests. So just to orient you to what you're about to see next, this is a pretty normal distribution curve. Um, there's a mean of 100, which is just the score of 100, and there's standard deviations on either side of that. So one study at 12 months uh, showed that the MDI and the PDI were both below mean, not quite bad enough to be less than two standard deviations, although a small percentage of the population was actually that far behind. But in terms of means for these kids, they were below but not quite less than two standard. And then another study looking at them 30 months out, pretty similar thing. So less than the mean, but not bad enough to be less than two standard deviations below the mean. Um, not as many studies when you look farther out. One study looked at them when they were five years old, and it said the same thing. So the average performance was, again, less than normal, but within a standard deviation. But when they went through it with a fine comb, what they realized was that we were having lower scores on certain things like visual motor, fine motor, word structure, attention, some of these finer aspects. So then another question that will often come up is, how does this compare? How does this stack up with other heart lesions? And the answer is that for a number of reasons, HLH is worse than other heart diseases. One of the reasons that we're beginning to understand is that the brain, it seems, develops differently because of that physiology, even before babies are born. So there's some, some aspect of that occurs. But an example is average IQ for HLH was 94 compared with another complex lesion like TGA, where it was 107. And the same thing, you've got the same finer problems with visual motor, expressive language, attention, etc. But again, just like the survivorship has evolved over time, I want you to remember that the neurological outcomes have evolved too. They've gotten better and better. And we don't know what life is going to look like for the kids who are being repaired today because it's, it's not happened yet. And we assume that it's going to be even better than it has been for any previous cohorts. So when you sit down with the family to give them these numbers, you have to keep that perspective in mind, too. Um, so that's survivorship, and that's neurological outcomes. But what does that mean for quality of life? I mean, quality of life matters to a lot of people, um, especially in something like this. And I guess the unfortunate answer is we really don't know. There aren't many good studies on this. Uh, there is a study from Europe that says that kids with HLH had lower self-esteem, more psychosomatic problems, lower peer acceptance. But um, I'm putting a quote up here from uh, the textbook of pediatric cardiology by Moss and Adams, which I think is a very apt quote. It says, she seems to thrive within the context of her own life, which is just a reminder that something like quality of life cannot be objectified too much. And you really have to take it in the broader context of someone's family, someone's community. And it's hard. How do you make, how do you know without just doing more work on it? This is a big list of complications. I don't think you need to read any of them. But what you need to understand is that this package of complications is what you are going to be living with if you go through these procedures. So the Fontaine physiology comes with this baggage. And what it means is that going through these procedures is rarely completely complication-free afterwards. So we've talked about the basic pathophysiology. We've talked about how the outcomes have changed over time. And this brings us to the meat of today's talk, which is the ethics. So as you can imagine, 20 years ago, 
what would happen when a patient would be diagnosed would, the, would be that the cardiologist would sit down with the parents and you would be offered the option of going through these surgeries, the option of getting a transplant, and the option of comfort care only. And what has changed in these last 20 years with these evolving numbers is that in many places through the country now, comfort care will not be offered as an option. There may be occasions where savvy parents may ask for it by themselves, and even in situations where that happens, there are often occasions where these things will end up going to ethics committees because physicians feel strongly uh, against that. And that's what I'm going to be talking about next. And the question that I'm going to be bringing up isn't, is surgery preferable? I think that we've reached a point where most reasonable people would agree that surgery is preferable. The question that's up for debate is, is it ethical to not present comfort care as an option with this data behind us? Again, I'm going to use some quotes here and there, but this is one opinion from one of the mothers I talked to. There was no choice for us to make. I was told the journey would be long, but with medicine and advanced care, they were prepared. It wasn't an option to have comfort care, but the choice was how we faced it emotionally and the choice our daughter made to be the fighter that she's grown to be. And then this is a contrasting opinion uh, from a different mother. Uh, and this mother did choose to do palliative surgery for her own child, but it's just that she also thinks that, sounding harsh but realistic, I firmly believe that comfort care should always be an option. And a woman and her family, along with her doctor, should have a choice whether to continue or not a pregnancy with a neonatal diagnosis of HLH. So this is the Kuichi Gorge, another local wonder. I highly recommend you guys go see it if you haven't. I have never hiked to the bottom of the Kuichi Gorge. I have 10 more days to do so. <laughs> the reason I bring up the Kuichi Gorge is because I'm going to be jumping one side and the other a little bit now. So I'm going to try and present both sides of this argument to you. I'm going to tell you different aspects of this debate that are often brought up and what people on either side often bring up as the arguments. So at, at the core, some of the ethical principles that are set to be at stake here. So proponents of offering comfort care will often talk about fairness. They will say that if certain parents can ask you for comfort care as an option but others aren't being presented a choice, is that really fair across the board for all parents? On the topic of fairness, people on the other side of this argument would then say, well, is it fair to single out HLH? At, the, at this point, is it fair to think of it differently? And uh, I mean, how does that stack up in terms of fairness? Social justice is another thing that's often brought up by uh, proponents of both sides of this argument. People will often say, when you're talking about using so many healthcare resources, when you're talking about signing up a family for such an impactful change in their lives, is it really fair not to offer the option of comfort care, knowing what life might look like ahead? And then on the flip side for social justice, this is an argument that says, well, there are many kids um, who are born with diseases where the only cure is a transplant, the only option is a transplant. Is it really fair then that if you have a disease where you have these three surgeries that could keep you going for years and years, not to use that so that you can buy time for these transplants, because transplants are a very, very valuable commodity. So these are some of the core principles that are often talked about. As to the argument about why HLH, why not other heart diseases, <coughs> proponents of comfort care will say, well, there's this entire historical baggage that I just detailed in a little bit for you guys. Um, and there are actually true pathophysiological differences about HLH too that make it so that we should be thinking about it differently. On the other side, the question is why indeed? I mean, if we've reached a point where numbers are looking so much better than they used to and are looking comparable to other things, then why not start to treat it like you would any other heart lesion? Isn't it time? 
the concept of suffering will come up again and again. As you look back through the literature on this, and there's a fair amount of published literature on this debate, um, the concept of suffering just comes back again and again. What people on one side of the argument will talk about is that the fear of suffering, the fear of knowing the kind of suffering that a child is going to go through in going through these stages plays a big role in how physicians and parents end up making choices. But on the flip side, what about the suffering of patients with any other kind of disease? What about the suffering of a cancer patient undergoing chemotherapy? What about the suffering of X? What about the suffering of Z? Um, pain can be managed. Pre-op and post-op complications can be managed. Is it really the patient's suffering that we're looking after, or is it the parent's fear of suffering that we are treating by not doing everything we can for the patient? This is a very loaded sentence. So I've seen a lot of babies suffer unnecessarily. This is a statement that was made by a physician who was counseling um, a mother whose baby had been diagnosed with HLH. She went on to write a book called Waiting with Gabriel, and this is from that book. Uh, to give you some background, the physician was an intensivist and understandably had seen a lot of bad outcomes. And we're talking about early 2000s here too, so a different time frame as well. But the point of bringing it up is that our personal biases of what we have seen and what we have seen in terms of outcome and suffering affect in a large way what we end up telling other people about anything, including HLH. This is a quote from one of our cardiologists. Uh, the suffering versus survival concept always rings a little hollow to me. I find it hard to believe that they would choose death over their current lives in the absence of serious mental health issues. I fear that the suffering that people are trying to prevent is the parent's suffering, which surely doesn't justify withholding life-saving therapy from another person. So I'm going to take a brief diversion from this um, back and forth debate to give you some really interesting data here. So they did a study back in the late 90s. They polled surgeons and they polled cardiologists. And the question that was asked to them was, if your hypothetical child was born with HLH, what would you do? The options were surgery, comfort care, or I don't know. And you know these results aren't too uh, um, surprising. The cardiologists were pretty split back then. The surgeons were more in favor of surgery. When you look at... <laughs> When you look at the actual breakdown of the physicians, um, intensivists were more in favor of comfort care, and generalists who tend to see happier outcomes in clinics, sort of, you know, the happy success stories, were more in favor of doing everything. So here's the kicker, though. They did another poll across the same catchment area. So this is North America both times, although the researchers were different, but the methods were pretty similar. And in 2007, so after we have all this new outcome data, they asked the same question. What would you do for your hypothetical child if they were born with HLH? And here's what happens. So the cardiologists are unchanged. They're still pretty split. If anything, the surgeons have become more uncertain, which uh, is strange. <laughs> <laughs> but what this highlights then is you have uncertainty. You have uncertainty. Everyone has uncertainty in what is going to happen next. This is another heavy statement, but between now and then, who knows what will happen? You can imagine this statement being used when you're counseling a parent whose child has been diagnosed, because we really don't. Between now and then, who knows what will happen? But then what becomes of this statement? Is it unfair and self-serving to nurture optimism in these families? Is it really unfair and self-serving to paint these bright pictures of how good things can be? Or is it compassionate and generous and obligatory to share the best outcomes, to let people know how good this can really be if they go ahead with this? These are compelling arguments both sides. This is a wonderful quote from uh, an article by Paris et al. talking about uncertainty. So the uncertainties for an infant with HLH require both parents and physicians to gaze into an open-ended abyss. 
when the most sophisticated and knowledgeable providers exhibit a distinct split, it can't be considered unreasonable for a non-medically trained parent to have a likewise choice. This is a quote from Amy Kubelbach, who wrote the book. We had three and a half months to sort through these conflicting medical opinions. It hardly seemed long enough. What must it be like for families who only have a few hours to decide? And this is a reality. There are cases where you, there isn't that much time. And so you've got these concepts of suffering, different ideas of what it means to suffer through these stages. And you've got this uncertainty of what life will look like down the road. And when you put them together, what ends up happening is you get variation in how people get counseled, right? So on what, this, is, uh, this is an interesting argument. So looking through the, through the literature, what you, what you soon learn is that the biggest factor that decides how a physician is going to counsel a parent isn't what they think or what they would do for their own kids, isn't what their own ethics are. It ends up usually being institutional. So what that means for one group is then, is that institutional bias? Are you being biased based on the pressure being put on you by your institute? On the other hand, uh, the, the argument would be, well, it's institutional success. I mean, we have numbers in the 90s. Why should we be offering comfort care anymore? Does it make sense? Again, strong arguments, both sides. Um, this is a poll done uh, amongst folks who do these counseling. So we're talking cardiologists, um, physicians. And what you end up seeing is that most people, almost everyone will talk about palliative surgery as an option when they're talking to mothers. And a lot of them will talk about comfort care too. We're talking numbers around 60%. But a very small minority talk about every option that exists today, a very small minority. This is a quote from one of our own physicians. I think that discussing the alternatives to invasive treatments is an ethical imperative. I don't think you've done your job if you don't give families the whole truth. It is the child and the family that are going to live out these decisions. And a contrasting quote from one of our cardiologists, it is my strong personal belief that a newborn with HLH deserves treatment in 2015. And this, I feel like, throws some really good perspective on it. One of the mothers that I was uh, able to talk to, looking back, I can't imagine as a doctor how difficult it is to explain such hardships ahead to brand new parents. So you've got this concept of suffering, you've got this uncertainty, and all of that creates variation in counseling. But like that mother said, we as doctors have been given a role by society, and that role is coming up with informed consent. And how does this variation in counseling play into what you end up speaking with when you go talk to a family. And it's, it's complicated. It's a long story. We spend all day talking about informed consent. But there are multiple stakeholders. When a patient is diagnosed, if it's prenatal, then there's OBGYN folks involved. There's neonatologists involved. There's a cardiologist involved. There may be a surgeon coming in and talking. And so what ends up happening is there's multiple stakeholders all talking to the mother about, or the parents about their different opinions about what's going on. And she has a short amount of time, the family, the parents have a short amount of time to decide what they need to do. How do you balance those ethical obligations of telling everything that you need to? How do you balance that with the sensitivity of what a parent might want to know? How do you know based on their culture, their beliefs, their needs, whether they want these options or not? It's a very tough question, and there are really no easy answers to this. Uh, people have tried to study the informed consent process and have basically said it's hard to study the informed consent process. Um, is it something can, that can be taught? Is it something that should be standardized? I don't know that there are simple answers to these questions either. But this all boils us down to the heart of this argument, which is the best interest. The questions that come up are, who decides what information we need to provide? Who decides what's in a child's best interest? I guess what it comes down to is, what would a reasonable person want to know? This is another heavily loaded statement. 
Um, and again, in the literature, there are these wonderful published debates between proponents of one side of the argument and the other, essentially debating each other through, uh, the, through the forum of a publication. And these are the questions that they bring up. Reasonability is an interesting area. People in favor of comfort care will argue that you should not bring your outcome data into reasonability. You cannot let outcomes affect reasonability because as long as there is a group of reasonable people out there who would want to hear about comfort care as an option, it doesn't matter if they're a minority, it doesn't matter if they're a small group, as long as that reasonable small group exists, it should be an option. On the other side, these outcomes are really compelling. At what point do you look back and say, hey, we're really, we shouldn't be offering comfort care anymore? And again, is there a simple answer to this? I guess one way to do it would be you could just ask people again and again over time until you feel like things are changing. Ask doctors, ask the public, what do they think? But do you think you could come up with a threshold of reasonability? In bioethics, we often talk about this spectrum going from all the way from unacceptable to obligatory over there. But the problem is outcomes are moving targets. What you think is okay today may be different tomorrow. And the biggest thing is a prognosis for a baby who was born today. So someone who you're going to be getting informed consent on today, when you try to give them all of this heavy dose of information, nothing that you say is going to be close enough to the truth because the truth is going to be better, maybe different, than it has been in the previous published literature. How does that weigh into this threshold of a reasonability? So uh, Dr. Mark Mercurio, who actually uh, visited us a couple of years ago, but noted bioethicist, he uh, wrote a paper in 2008 where he put a few really interesting suggestions out there. One of them was, unless it is ethically unacceptable, you should offer it. The, the example there being, if you would be willing to take these parents to court to overturn their refusal to treat, then maybe something has become unacceptable. If that's not the case, maybe it's still just inadvisable, and there's a difference there. The other thing he says is that while you're counseling parents, give them all the relevant information. But if you have a strong bias, let them know that you have a strong bias and let them know why it is. Let them know why you feel strongly about something. And I think the third suggestion is the most interesting of all. Could you come up with a survival potential number for a particular kid based on all the different variables that you know affect survival? Could you boil it all down to one number? And if you did that, then regardless of diagnosis, it doesn't matter if you're a 24-week preemie or an HLH or a TGA or a whatever combination of letters you want. If you have the same survival potential, we should be offering you the same options regardless of what you have. This is a very tricky thing, but it is out there. This, I think, is um, a, a very nice quote from one of the mothers where she's talking about something easier that we could do to help. Given what we now know, our first wish would be that all parents should have a chance to talk with them, another HLH family and to hear something, actually everything, of what the journey and the process looks and feels like. It's a hard discussion, and surely not everyone agrees, but a parent needs to know how this can all play out or not. In case you're wondering if this is still something that's being debated, the answer is yes, this is not over by any means. Just back in April in 2015 at PES, there was a very well-attended uh, debate between Dr. Kahn and Dr. Bonofsky, who are the, the people who publish a lot of this literature. Um, I call it the tornado in San Diego. Um, <laughs> and I don't think that there was a clear result. I don't think there was a clear winner at the end of it. Um, I know that some folks here actually attended that talk. I, I was unable to, but... Uh, I don't know that uh, the answer is out there yet. So that's coming to the end of what I have to say to you guys. As I bring my part of the talking to an end, I'm going to leave you with a few uh, choice quotes. One from Amy Kubelbach. She says, 
Doctors probably consider the death of an infant to be a medical failure. But in a way, we view what happened to be a medical success. Doctors' expertise in diagnosing the condition and their candor in advising us about the treatment options helped us give Gabriel a good, although brief, life and a good death. On the flip side, this is the inscription, or was the inscription, that you would read as you walked your way into the pediatric cardiology ward at Great Ormond Street Children's Hospital in London. I was born with half a heart, not half a life. Powerful words, I think. Um, which brings us to the poll section of today's talk. So what I would like is if you guys would give me your opinion, what would you choose for your child if he or she was diagnosed with HLH at birth? The options are A, the surgeries, B, comfort care, C, I don't know. You guys could go ahead and poll. They have a lot of responses. Okay, five more seconds, people. Five, four, three, two, one. Ooh, ooh, interesting. All right. Can you pick A or, or D, which is, I would pick stage surgeries and then later on regret it? <laughs> <laughs> All right, this is interesting. Um, and the reason that this is interesting is because, <laughs> the reason this is interesting is because as part of the medical community, um, what you guys have to say about this, what you guys think about this is, as important, if not more important, than me standing here giving you these facts. Because as stakeholders in all of this, it is debate amongst people like us that will end up hopefully leading this discussion forward. So that, I think, is all I have to say. Thank you. be presenting at least a uniform um, set of options. So shouldn't we all at least get together and decide whether we're going to offer this or not as a, as, at least as a group of cardiologists, maybe not the rest of us. But. Yes, I think that's a great thought. I think that in some of the larger institutions, that is actually what happens. I think that like in um, the NICU, for example, there are, you know, there are examples of us sitting down and figuring out what we think is acceptable and not acceptable as a group. And I believe there are similar things that exist in uh, the world of cardiology, too. I'm, just, I'm not sure, though. Does Dr. Bowman have any? I think our practice here for quite a while is to, is to not have offered comfort. Uh, that's certainly, I, I haven't. Um, I think as long as I've been, I don't think I've done that since I've been here. Um, I'm not sure I agree with myself. But, <laughs> uh, and, and, and when I was a fellow, we offered all three. And um, you know, the, world, the world has changed around it as it was presented. And we have a surgical center now in the world that has outstanding outcomes. And, um, and so, yeah, I don't, I don't think typically we have offered comfort care. And a lot of what led to this discussion was a patient recently who made it a very complicated discussion because of a bunch of specific issues about the patient, um, the, the mother, her social situations, her understanding of the situation, and, and what she was 
suggesting as a way for it to be managed, including whether comfort care should be an option. It was discussed in pretty intensely in the cardiology group about, it, you know, is, is it even acceptable to offer comfort care? And there was definitely not an agreement on whether, whether it is or not acceptable and advisable or, or, you know, or absolutely we should. Agreement by who? The cardiologist. The neonatologist basically did the same thing also. We met as a group and had, I don't know if we ever came to a consensus, but I think we came to as closest thing to a consensus that it was uh, medically inadvisable but not impermissible um, to offer. Is there a weak cutoff for that? Is there like a gestational cutoff where that decision was made? Like at what point is it inadvisable but uh, not for just premature babies? Well, we as a group have decided that 25 weekers, it's uh, with other complications, it is, it is uh, impermissible to not okay. resuscitation. But for that 24 to 20, but for that 24 <laughs> week, it is um, in a, it not impermissible. Not impermissible to be medical. Is that pretty reflective of the rest of the country too? Is that pretty similar to what happens in other places? That's a moving target. Yeah. <laughs> with what you suggested that uh, this threshold of where it's um, mandatory and where it's um, basically not advisable, that spectrum is changing. And a lot of this is a self-fulfilling prophecy. If you never resuscitate a 23-weeker, you never have a survivor at 23 weeks. Once people start doing some intensive care at 23-weekers, that survival begins to change, much like doing stage surgery for H hypoplastic left heart. Um, before you ever had surgery, you had no survivor. Now you have surgery, the surgery gets better, your survivals get better. At some point, societally, we hit the threshold where you say that the outcome is so good that you can't offer comfort measures. And I think, as you're suggesting, we're probably close to that point with hypoplastic left heart, but by virtue of the debate still being in this year's PAS and, and, your, and the observation that there was no clear winner, and the audience, after hearing your outcomes, uh, many 15% say yeah, but they're not reasonable. Like I said, <laughs> It doesn't have to be a big, a big group, as long as it's a reasonable minority. It doesn't is this have stuff? to be a majority. It has to be reasonable people, given the facts, will make a choice. And, and many medical people who know, you know, multiple surgeries, you know, the reality of transplant, you know, the case that, that you that prompted your interest in this, as you well know, did not turn out well. It doesn't mean that should drive the argument, because an end of one should not drive decision making, but in that particular case, that baby did die. After the parents were forced to, sort of, I would say forced to, to take the, uh, they were coerced I, by, by our system to make a decision uh, for palliative, or for surgery. So Shashank, you and I have spoken in the past about the social justice argument, and I'm wondering when we talk about reasonable people, um, you have surveyed mostly North American physicians, and the United States places a huge burden, individual burden on families and individuals and individual insurance companies to pay for and support these children for the rest of their lives. 
Um, is there comparable data that comes from places that have socialized medicine where the burden is placed more on society and not on the individual for care of these kids? So there are actually comparable uh, publications at every level of this discussion. So, there is com so there's comparable survivorship data across Europe from different centers. There's comparable neurological developmental outcomes. So it's not like we're talking about different numbers in survivorship and outcomes. We are. There's also comparable data in terms of how unsure people are when they do counseling. So just like you saw the physicians were split about what they would do, there's similar data out there for Europe too. The difference, the, there's an interesting paper that actually talks about the European perspective of this debate. And what they bring up is that it seems like there is a life at all costs philosophy versus a quality of life philosophy, depending on which part of the world you're practicing. And that weighs into what you end up doing for counseling. And so even though that paper still agrees that we're confused and we don't really think we have a straight answer yet, it does include the fact that in many countries, including Britain and um, Australia, for example, comfort care is still routinely discussed as an option. So they haven't quite reached the point where it's no longer on the table. It seems like they discuss it a little bit more frequently from what I've read. And I may be wrong. Terrific presentation, thank you. The, uh, the argument that parents make the decision because they don't want to suffer as opposed to worrying about the suffering of their child, I've always found that a strange argument. When it's equally true that parents are under great either internal and or external pressure to decide in favor of life at all costs that so many families, and I've actually had them say this to me, I'm afraid of what my family, what my church, what other people would say if I didn't do everything. So if that argument goes in both ways. We can't trust that a parent in that situation is really making a decision in the best interest of child versus how they feel they would be viewed by their community. That's a very valid argument. Um, and I think that, um, I agree completely. I think that one of the other things that, um, on the topic of suffering that uh, Amy Kubelback mentions in her book is not quite to do with societal pressures, but what she says is that not her own suffering, not her own fear of suffering herself, it's fear of suffering for her baby. What she says is, at some point, um, my desire for him to live versus his suffering in meeting this goal of mine, when does one outweigh the other? diagnosis is made prenatally, is it looked at as acceptable for a family to terminate a pregnancy? Oh, that's a great question. We have a, 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 a lot of data about prenatal stuff, too. I didn't go into prenatal today because we could have been sitting here all day talking about it, but I'll pull up some slides. So here's a slide about variation in prenatal counseling. So as you can see, what happens in prenatal is that the option of termination also comes up. This is what, um, this is comparable to a slide that we were talking about for postnatal counseling. So as you can see, everyone discusses palliative care. Many of them discuss termination. Um, still a small minority that discusses all four options. We also have a bit of data to tell you about um, what ends up happening in terms of numbers for kids who have, um, excuse me, let me just pull up the right slide. Here we go. So when the diagnosis of HLH is made prenatally, people who choose to stay with the pregnancy 
quite understandably, end up choosing to do everything. So 96% of people underwent surgery if it was a prenatal diagnosis where the parents decided not to terminate, um, and versus 47% postnatally in this particular study. And um, the termination rates have actually gone up over time, but that may just be reflective of increased pickup rates. It's hard to tell what that means. But an interesting comparison is termination rates across the rest of the world. So you've got 48% in the Americas during the time of this study, comparable with 71% in France, 45%, um, uh, sorry, 60% in Britain. So it, these are like reflective of a lot more than just um, the survivorship numbers. I think this has a lot to do with culture and uh, where you are in the world as well. Yeah. I just have two, uh, a thought and a question. So my question is, we haven't talked about siblings, and I think for a lot of families that's an enormous part of the decision. Um, and then the other thought, and I haven't kept up with this literature, there are probably people in this room who know way better than I, but there's a kind of different paradigm for counseling that has to do with relational um, counseling, and so I, I wonder if there's any literature about how the counseling is done. So relational counseling, just briefly, is you talk with the person about who is it that supports you, that know, that you know will support your decision rather than trying to convince you of their position. And then the second question is, what do you see as your options right now? So it has a lot more to do with listening, and then the information provided revolves around that person's worldview. And so I wondered if there's any literature on kind of how the counseling is done, and also if there's any literature on sibling so I can tell you that all of, the all of the literature that has to do with getting informed consent, so any paper that talks about informed consent always talks a bit about this aspect too, about involving um, the larger picture of family and community in the, uh, in the decision that ends up happening for parents. So that is definitely, like, they're cognizant of that. But I've not seen any literature about uh, the specific kind of counseling that you're speaking of. It sounds, it sounds really interesting, though. Um, so, so you might be interested, Shashank, there, there's a big move now to change um, the meaning of informed consent. Um, and uh, one of the people that's spearheaded it is an adult cardiologist, Harlan Krimholz from Yale. Um, and uh, it's really interesting to hear him speak and give the, you know, the version. And part of it is to involve shared decision making in, in, in the informed consent process, but also part of it is um, to assess people's understanding of what you said. So it's not, you know, it's not just that here's a paper, here's the risk and benefits, Sign on the dotted line, yeah. you know, um, and it's really very interesting. Um, you had said this, and you went up to age five years, but I was wondering if there was any longer term, like, yeah. are these kids teenagers, and you can just ask them, um, what's your quality of life like, or do you, do you work, like, what are your memories of all the stuff you went through to get So the European, that's a great question. The European quality of life data comes from an older cohort. I don't know the, the years exactly, but you can imagine from those questions that were asked that that wasn't asked to five-year-olds. Those were questions that were asked to older people. In terms of actual neurological outcomes, I have a study that goes to as high as six years out. I don't, I don't have anything more than that, but I'm sure that they're either happening or exist already. Just don't have it. Um, is there any literature that talks about possible role of the pediatrician or family doctor involved in counseling somebody who, who knows the family well and can help the, the family with it? Yeah, so um, what I saw in the literature was, again, literature that talks about informed consent and talks about um, um, patient, uh, sorry, doctors' perspectives on suffering always makes mention that generalists, including pediatricians and family physicians who see these kids in a more global um, uh, environment afterwards, have different opinions, but I didn't see anything specific about involving them in the consent process. But again, that's a really interesting thought. So, uh, for, for one, thank you, because I think you did a phenomenal job. Um, 
And uh, yeah, I think a lot of the the questions are, are sort of obvious about where you draw the line and whose values you place higher value on. Um, and you know, there's does the family have the right to say that my value is going to be quality of life over all life at all costs? And is that a reasonable question? The, the other piece of it, I think, is in this issue, which then it's about do we as physicians offer comfort care, is the, the whole world that we all live in, which is has the same pressures on us, which is as physicians, there's a lot of pressure in our medical culture to, to do life at all costs as the way to view this. And that we really should not tell parents, that there's, there's nobody told me this, but there's this sense that we shouldn't tell parents that it's okay for you to make a quality of life decision about the child that you want to have and raise and what it's going to mean for you and your family going forward, that, that we're not supposed to say that. We're supposed to say, you, here's the kid you got. Go live with them and make a good life for yourself. By the way, insurance is going to cover most of this stuff. We're going to bankrupt you. Um, we're not going to support your kid in schools. We're going to, right, we're going to pretty much make you just suffer out there. But good luck, and, and we'll see you back every six months. And that, that, that's a, a, you know, we really should pat people on the back and say, go do this. And, I, and we're very acculturated to push people in that direction. And, and I think it's a really great question to ask ourselves about whether we're, we're really pushing families in our direction. I think that's a brave statement. I, I've certainly felt that in the time of it. So, so I think you, you brought up Mark Mercurio's paper, and I think it raises the point, Mark Mercurio's paper raises the point that it may not be ethical for us not to offer an acceptable alternative that is still deemed by society ethically acceptable. So all of you have a great opportunity to give feedback to Shashank on a written paper. I'm going to suggest, I take mine right now, as you have the fellowship and you do this talk again, I think developing the two ethical arguments which are linked, one is whether or not society should feel it ethically acceptable to offer comfort care, and two, whether or not individuals can then, if it's still acceptable, not offer comfort care as part of the counseling. It's a separate ethical interconnection because it relates to the individual's perception of where society is. But I think if you're going to develop these, these are two Make sure to link but separate ethical arguments. And you can get connected to talk about the curious if you want. So, um, and Shashank knew we could talk for 45 minutes, and he was really wonderful at being thorough, but succinct to allow us to at least have 15 to 20 minutes. Um, I want to remind folks we did honor we did honor Dr. Will this morning because she we knew she was not going to be able to join us next Wednesday for our our, our, our end-of-year extravaganza, quiz, quiz bowl, as well as all of our um, major awards we honor uh, um, presented next Wednesday morning. So we hope to see that all of you and more here next Wednesday morning. Shanky, Captain, up here.